There's no medication, so relax. <laughs> For you that know the joke. It's interesting how many people said to me that this would be a small number in chapel today as if that would bother me uh, as I was walking down the hall or somebody was saying something to me, it'll be a small number. And, and I thought, isn't that an interesting... Uh, isn't that an interesting idea that somehow you're not enough? Um, I, and, I need, and it just made me wonder, I have to tell you this story because it, it, it shaped my whole thinking about ministry and since you're from the seminary, this is critical. Years ago when I graduated from seminary, I, I uh, went back to Canada to Regina, Saskatchewan from Southern California, which was at least a shock even though I'd grown up on the prairies, but my wardrobe had changed extensively and I only had gauze pants, it was the late 70s, early 80s, so, uh, and gauze pants were in, and so were sandals, and all of a sudden I had, but anyway, I got to this church, and, and the senior pastor there was, turned out to be someone who deeply mentored me over the years, and, and in those first years, uh, just taught me about church in ways that probably I never was ever taught in seminary, and uh, we had these Bible studies on Tuesday night. I did the, the young adult Bible study, and it was packed, which was nice, and it was an exciting time in the, in the growth of that ministry. And George did this Bible study in which one person came. George had a MDiv from Bethel, THM from Princeton, a doctorate from San Francisco Seminary, and every Tuesday morning, he would Tuesday night, I should say, he would show up for this Bible study, and Joe the barber, just down the street in downtown, would come walking down, and he'd go to this Bible study. And, and me, being the young theologue and thought I knew everything, used to say to George, "What a, why are you wasting your time? You know, I mean, look at you. I mean, one person. And one winter, it was bad blizzard, and... Joe walked to do the Bible study down from his apartment in the downtown to the church. And George faithfully drove through the blizzard to be there while I had canceled the young adult Bible study because it was a snow day. And he said to me this, listen, if Joe wants to come to do a Bible study, then it's worth my time to be involved. I, mean, I wish there were miracle stories of it growing to millions and things like that. There aren't. I mean, except... One faithful barber, two years later, led one of the leading physicists in Canada to Christ while he was cutting his hair. And then there were two in the Bible study every Tuesday night. So you're worth it. The lectionary reading for this Sunday is interesting. I know not all of you follow the lectionary, but it is the story that was read this morning. Some of you have known it as the prodigal son story. I can't remember the first time that this changed for me. I remember the first sermon that I ever heard preached that twisted this story in a whole another way for me. And it was preached by Lloyd Ogilvie at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in 1979. And he preached a sermon and pointed out what the definition of prodigal was. He said, prodigal means lavish and reckless. And indeed, that is, he said, how it should be understood. But the prodigal in this story is God, not the son. The father 
is the prodigal father. Spending money. We think of, of recklessness as spending money recklessly and all of those things. Somehow doing something wastefully and extravagant. But if that definition is accurate, Ogilvy said, then the person in the story most prodigal is the father who lavishes his son, his love on the returning son. This parable, Ogilvy said, should be the parable of a prodigal God. Later, I've read others who picked up that same theme. Henry Nouwen, William Willimon, so many others who've picked up that theme of the father as somehow this extravagant, excessive, loving father, this prodigal God. So if you haven't heard this before, perhaps you should go read the wonderful book by Henry Nouwen entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son. However, what I'm about to do today is just to kind of throw a few other lobs over the bow about this story that I think are important. If there's any homiletics professors in attendance, I'm about to do what you're taught, you tell your students not to do, which is send lobs over the bow and hope that they hit. But I'm going to do it anyway. First of all, I want you to notice this. If you open up to Luke chapter 15, and I'm certain you brought your Bibles, you didn't. Maybe it'll pop up there, no. Uh, if you open up to Luke chapter 15, I want you to note the placement of the story. I've always been fascinated by how Luke gathers stories together. Don't ever read Luke thinking that it all just kind of was happen chance or even linear in what he's trying to do. He's usually trying to drive home points. He's usually trying to push a theme. And for instance, the lost parables of Luke 15 come right after the banquet story in Luke 14. Verses 13 to 14, this is what he says. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed. Here is a God who, for some reasons known only to the Trinity, loves to work the margins inhabited by the least and the lost and the last. No matter what your self-referenced sense of superiority is, whether it's self-righteousness or individual preferences or social political leanings or theological positioning, the God you worship this morning has a thing about those who are not so sure, who are not so positioned. It is of the nature of this God to come to the margins and thus making the marginal the center of his realm. Matthew 25, 40. Truly I tell you, just as you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. Jesus seemed to have a thing about the lost, and the least, and displaced, and the last. And in many ways, the banquet story of John 14 and the stories of lostness in Luke 15 tell you way more about the heart of God than they do anything else. There's lots of sub-stories that are taking place here, but they're really not as important. For example, you could ask the question, 
how could the people be so crazy as not to accept a free banquet? The lost and the lame get it. Why don't the haves? What kind of shepherd was he letting his sheep get away? I mean, how careless the woman was to lose the coin so critically needed by her. And that's why there is one other fact about the placement of this story that is so critical. The story of the prodigal son, or prodigal God, happens right after Jesus' statement about discipleship. Listen to this in, verse, in chapter 14. If any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He who has an ear, let him hear. A lavish and a prodigal God is a call for us to become lavish and prodigal disciples and followers of him. Notice the context that prompted Jesus to tell the lost parables in Luke 15. It's a reply to the religiously assured and the religiously confident Chapters 15, verses 1 to 2, we're told that the tax collectors and the sinners had gathered. I love that. I mean, the tax collectors aren't even good enough to be sinners. They're actually divided. I actually think tax collectors must have been worse in their eyes. But we're told in verse 1 and 2 that the religious establishment were there as well. An interesting context, don't you think? Two groups. One perhaps more eager and open to another way of thinking than the other. One group maybe even willing to change, but another group not at all interested. Worse, more interested in protecting their territory and setting the boundaries these parables that follow after are a challenge to these religiously self-assured and no more so than the parable of the lost son. How far will God go with his lavish love? For the religious establishment, way further than they would like it. Notice, thirdly, that the story does not have an ending that tells you what happened after. We're left to wonder, will the older brother get it? Will he accept the father's invitation to come to the party? Don't you wonder what he would have done? Depending how naive you are, you figure he did. Will the returning son actually live a better life? Will this lavish love actually transform him. In many ways, it's great storytelling, isn't it? I mean, leave the story open-ended so the reader must finish it itself. But it's also a good way to end from a theological perspective. You see, no matter what happens next, do not neglect the critical truth underlying the story. Do not lose touch with the Father. You are utterly dependent on his lavish love.
One last observation and lob over the bow. The intent to get lost or careless in our living is not the point of any of these stories. Jesus doesn't seem to judge the severity of the lostness, the carelessness, or any of those things. He doesn't scold the lost sheep. He doesn't berate the woman who lost the coin. And he doesn't rebuke the lost son. I mean, the whole point of these parables are focused on the determination of the searcher to find the lost something. The shepherd leaves all the other sheep to find that one lost sheep. The woman who lost the coin turns everything upside down and searches diligently until she finds it. And she doesn't give up looking until she finds her lost coin. And then she rejoices in finding it. The lost son is welcomed back to the father's house. The focus of these parables is not on us as the lost ones, but on a God who seeks and saves the lost. Jesus even goes on to say that there's joy in heaven when the lost one is found. You remember the Zacchaeus story. This deep sense of sadness that Jesus feels as the crowd begins to murmur. You know what murmuring is. It's interesting in the Gospels, there's all sorts of comments about the Sadducees murmuring and the, pro, and the, the Pharisees murmuring and the disciples murmuring. This is the one place in the Gospels in the Zacchaeus story where it says, and they all murmured. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus' deep sadness in that murmuring is that they don't get it. It isn't about Zacchaeus. It's about the love of God. So what does he say to him? In the midst of the murmur, he says to the people, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. I believe it's open-ended because you have to decide. Not on where you stand in social and cultural issues, as critical as that might be. Not on what constitutes sin and brokenness that results in lostness, because that is still crucial. But no, you have to decide how lavish and how determined you are going to be in your seeking. How much you are willing to be inconvenienced. Yes, and even be made uncomfortable. Frankly, <laughs> you have to decide how prodigal you will be to seek and to save what was lost. I've told the story of losing my daughter in the West Edmonton Mall many times. In my own carelessness, in my own love of fashion and looking at clothes as she disappeared into the mall. And in everything inside of me, totally focused in trying to find her. 
And then realizing when I finally find her with the security guards as she's eating an ice cream cone, that she's not even aware that she was lost. When I found her, I grabbed her and I threw her over my leg and I spanked her. Actually, I didn't do that, but I grabbed her. You see, I would do anything, anything to find her. The point of this story, and the, par- the, the point of the whole stories of lostness and discipleship are very simple. Not where do you stand, as critical as that is, but how far will you go? Let's pray. Lavish God of love. We long to be your followers. We long to learn to be as lavish and as determined as you are in our own lives. We love because you first loved us. Thank you. Amen. Go with God.